thank you that high and low, you're just always here. And so we make ourselves open to you, whatever you want to say this morning. We're just ready. We're receptive. God, what you say goes. We love you and we love your presence. Continue to dwell here, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, church. This morning, we are going to continue through our series in the book of Judges. Uh, the last couple of weeks, Andrew has done a tremendous job of explaining this cycle that we see happen again and again in Judges. So we see the people living in, in peace, and then they start to drift from God through sin and worshiping other gods and idols, and then they fall into this oppression and this judgment. They cry out to the Lord. He sends a judge. They're delivered. And then last week we saw the story of Barak and Deborah, and then we, how they attacked Sisera, and then we heard the great children's ministry story about how J.L. drove a tent spike through his temple and killed him. And then Andrew gave us this beautiful rendition of the, the chart-topping song of Deborah and Barak. I won't even attempt to recreate what he did with that. But I bring all that up because that brings us to the end of chapter 5. And the last line of that chapter is, then the land had peace for 40 years. And today we're going to attempt to cover all of chapter 6. And there's 40 verses in that, so hopefully we'll be out of here by the time the Super Bowl starts. But So we're just going to jump in. So it ends with, then the land had peace for 40 years. So chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock in their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So we see, we see the pattern already starting over, right? So they had peace for 40 years. Midianites and the Amalekites show up, and now we find them crying out to the Lord. So I want to pause for a minute and set this up. So we're going to spend about three weeks on Gideon. So I want to explain a little bit where we're starting at today who these Midianites are and who these Amalekites are and why we continue to deal with them. So Midian was the son of Abraham. So many of you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, but then when Sarah dies, Abraham takes a second wife, Keturah. Together they have six sons, the fourth of which is Midian. If we read in Exodus, Moses' father-in-law, whose name is Jethro, is a priest of Midian. So that explains that when they leave, this is the land in which they wander in the wilderness. And then later, the Midianites become enemies to the children of Israel. We read this story about Balak, who comes to the elders of the Midians and said, listen, these Israelite people are crazy. They're going to take over everything. You have to deal with them. So they suggest, why don't you bring in Balaam? And he'll put a curse on them and eliminate them. Balaam recognizes that the favor of God is on the Israelites. So he doesn't curse them. He ends up blessing them. 
But then Balaam goes back to the elders of the Midianites and he says, listen, here's plan B. Take your young women and seduce them, tempt them, lead them into sexual sin, sexual immorality, and God will turn his favor against them. And then we read this story about how a plague sweeps through the Israelites' camp. So that's a, that's a big, broad, painted overview of who the Midianites are. The Amalekites. Amalek is a grandson of Esau. Esau, we know, is a, is a brother of Jacob. And Esau is a man of the flesh. We see him sell off his birthright for nothing more than a bowl of stew. And we see that he continued to live in sin, and now we see it going from generation to generation because we see Amalek and the Amalekites living the same way. And the Amalekites are the first group of people to attack the Israelites as they leave Egypt and head for the Promised Land. And many of you will probably recognize that story as well because we see the Amalekites and the Israelites down in the valley battling, and we see Moses up on a hill. And as long as Moses has his hands raised, the Israelites win. But then as he begins to get tired and his hands fade, the tides turn and the Amalekites begin to win. So then we see Aaron and Hur sitting on a rock. They stand on each side and hold his hands up so the Israelites will win. But then an interesting thing that we read in Exodus 17.9, it says, The Lord will be at war with the Amalekites from generation to generation. The Lord will be against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And this, be, this is because the Israelites continue to compromise with them. They continue to settle with them. And if we even went on even further, we would see Saul, the king, the first king of Israel. He was called to go into battle and completely eliminate the Amalekites. So he goes into battle and he kills everything except their best cattle, their best sheep, and he keeps those for himself. And he also spares the king of the Amalekites, a guy named King Agag, which is kind of fun to say. And that's a big deal because later on we'll see this man walk into the court of Persia named Haman, the Agagite. And so because even King Saul at this point won't do what the Lord called him to do, he compromises with them. We see Haman come up with this plan that he's going to kill every single Jew in the entire empire. And that's the story we read in the book of Esther. So I explain that to you for two reasons. We continue to read about the Midianites and the, and the Amalekites because they continue to be compromised with. They continue to be settled with. And also I think it paints a really cool picture of how the Bible isn't just individual stories. That this whole thing weaves together into one beautiful picture. Okay, 34 more verses to go. We got this. All right, verses 7 through 10. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. Okay, so here we get them crying out again. And God sends them a prophet. There's two prophets mentioned in the entire book of Judges. 
One was the prophetess Deborah that we learned about last week. The other one is this person. We don't know who it is. doesn't even have a name. God just sends a prophet. And he sends a prophet before he sends the judge. Because he doesn't just come to save them. He tells the prophet to go and explain to them why they need saved. He's rebuking the way that they're living. And he tells them what God has done for them. But then he also explains what they've done for God. So listen to that again. Verse, seven, or, uh, verse 8. This is what God has done for you. The God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. I drove them out before you, and I gave you the land. I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the other gods of the Amorites. In whose land you live. That's what God has done for them. And then he says, this is what you've done for God. You have not listened to me. So he, he just comes right at him. He rebukes what they're, what they're saying. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So this prophet is explaining to them, you're living in sin and you're not even repentant about it. You're just living in regret. That's why you're crying out. You're mad about your consequences. The interesting thing about regret is it's, that's the only thing that bothers us, is the consequences for our sin. Because if there's no consequences, there's no regret. There's no reason for us to want to change. Regret doesn't show us how our sin affects God. We just worry about how it affects us. Repentance, however, allows us to feel what our real loss is, our separation in relationship with the Lord. And repentance allows us to accept what has happened, turn from it, receive the forgiveness, and our right standing with God. So as we see here, these people are living with regret. Regret is about us. Repentance, however, is about the Lord. So as we move on, verses 11 through 12, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak and Ophrah, not Oprah, that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So why are some of these details important? So to explain this a little bit, if you were to thresh wheat at this time, you would want to do it up on a hill, or at least on raised land. You would have a stone threshing floor, and you would do that in the late afternoon or evening. So as you took your winnowing fork and you threw your grain in the air, the breeze off the Mediterranean would blow the chafe away, and the grain would fall. Made life a lot easier. But here we see Gideon, because of fear of the Midianites, trying to do this down in the valley in a wine press. So he's taking his fork and he's throwing it up and it's all coming right back down. His life is so much harder because of this self-inflicted fear of the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord comes and he calls him a mighty warrior. My guess is Gideon's not feeling very mighty right about now. So then we see him get into a debate with the angel of the Lord in verses 13 through 18. So he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. 
And Gideon replies, pardon me, my Lord? But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of, the hand of, out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if now I have found favors in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. So we see in this debate, Gideon saying, listen, you saying the Lord's with me, but look around. Look at all the things he did for our ancestors. And here we are, we're getting thumped by the Midianites. But the angel of the Lord said, go, I am sending you. And then Gideon starts to sound like many of us may sound when we feel called to do something. Yeah, but I, yeah, I can't do that. I'm, I'm not socially important enough. I'm not economically in the right place. I might be the poorest member of the weakest clan in a non-prominent tribe, we may say, I'm, I'm not smart enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm too scared. I'm just an everyday person in Marion County, Iowa. How can the Lord use me? But we see the Lord saying, go. I am calling you. I'm calling you, and I will equip you. It's not, you're equipped, so go. He's calling, and then he'll equip. And the, and the problem with that way of thinking is that's who we say we are. Friends, that's not who God says we are. There's a big difference in that. Verses 19 through 22. Gideon went inside, prepare a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of the gods said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of his staff that was in his hand. Fire flared up from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Allah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So why, does that, why is that so surprising to Gideon? The angel of the Lord touches it and it's all consumed with fire. Exodus 33, 20, God says, you cannot see my face for no one may see my face and live. So Gideon all of a sudden is like, whoa, I've just seen his face. I'm probably about to die right here. But listen to what verse 23, what the angel of the Lord replies. But the Lord said to him, peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So the angel of the Lord said, I'm the one calling you. Even in your fear, have peace. 
Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So we move on, 25 through 27. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. And then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon then took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather during the day. So, why are some of these details in here? So one of the things we notice is we're he was supposed to take a bull that's seven years old. Why does that detail matter? If we look back at verse 1 of chapter 6 that I read, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. So God is saying, go and take this bull that kind of represents the Midianites and the Amalekites' oppression over you. It's been around the same time. And we're going to kill that today. We're going to start something new here and now. But then another interesting thing. He says, go and cut down the Asherah pole and the altar to Baal. That's in your own backyard. Why did the Lord tell him to do this? So what Gideon has been asked to do, he's been asked to deliver the Israelites out of the hands of the Midianites. But then he tells him to start at home. You got to take care of what's in your own backyard. He's saying that if you want to lead people publicly, you're going to have to live this out privately. You're going to have to do it when nobody's looking. And many times we see that it's not so much that the Israelites didn't worship God. It's not that they didn't worship Yahweh. They tried to blend in these other gods. They tried to take the best of all these worlds and create a religion out of it. They created this melting pot of spirituality. But if we look at verse 27 again, and even after all God has done for him, he says, So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. Because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. So when I read this, I think, man, Gideon is still scared. He's had this conversation with the, the angel of the Lord, and he's still fearful. But then when I sat with that for a little bit, I realized, you know what? He still did it. Even in the face of fear. He may have not done it the way that maybe we thought he was supposed to, but he was still faithful to what the Lord was calling him to do. And an interesting side note here, the name Gideon means a hewer. And a hewer is a person that cuts stone and cuts wood. So even in his name, this is what Gideon is called to do, to cut down the, Baal, the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole. And another thing we can learn from this is, like I said, if we want to lead people publicly into the kingdom of God, into the, for the name of Jesus, we need to start at home. We need to start in our own backyards. Probably need to keep moving. Okay, uh, verses 28 through 32. In the morning, when the people of town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it, cut down, and the second bowl sacrificed on the newly built altar. 
They ask each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. Which is interesting because they did it at night. It was just Gideon and ten of his servants. So it makes me wonder if one of his servants turned on him. Verse 30, the people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's case? Like, is Baal not your God? Why do you, why do you have to defend him? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jeroboam that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. So, again, there is a lot going on right there. So if Gideon was scared before, he's probably terrified now. I mean, they're showing up to kill him. They're not showing up to ask questions. They're wanting to kill him at this point. Now, remember that these altars were in his backyards. It said, go and cut down your father's altar of Baal and his Asherah pool. But what's interesting is look who, look who stands up for him. His father. It says, listen, if that's really your God, he will defend himself. So why did he have the altar and the pole in his backyard if he didn't believe it? Was it that he was just trying to fit in with the culture so he did these things so people wouldn't question him? Or was it maybe that he did worship those things, but then when he saw his son Gideon stand up for God, he thought, yeah, I want that. But either way, we see Joash stand up to defend his son. Verses 33 through 38. Now, all the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern people joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abyssalites, which are his family, to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, so now he's called his whole tribe, calling them into arms, also into Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali. So now he's calling other tribes from the region. And if we were to jump ahead into, verse, or into chapter 7, we would see that this summons about 32,000 men to show up to fight with Gideon. And Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, like he starts out like he is gung-ho, and then we see a pause. And then he says, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, I will know that you will save me by my, Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. So God didn't say, I'm going to give him a few drops and let him figure it out on his own. He gets a whole bowl full. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me just make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time make the fleece dry and the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. So, Gideon, after 
everything he's been through, he's like, God, okay, I'm impressed. Because at this point, he's spoken with the angel of the Lord. He has seen fire consume his offering. He has seen his father step way out of his comfort zone and against all the townspeople and save him. It says the spirit of the Lord had came upon him. All these people that he, when he blew the trumpet, all these people showed up to go to battle with him. He's promised me that I can do this. He made the fleece wet and the ground dry. But if I could just, if I could have one more sign, then I'll know it's true. Gideon's stuck in this place of, I believe, but I'm still needing help with my unbelief. So Gideon is a man who feels inferior because of his outside circumstances. He isn't able to stand with courage because he's so used to listening to that voice in his head saying, I can't. I can't do it. One of my daughters is here, but if they were both here, and maybe some of the, the, the kids that I've coached over the years will testify to the fact that I freak out when you tell me I can't. I lose my mind a little bit. I get it that it might be hard. I get it that it might stretch you out of your comfort zone. You might even fail. But don't ever tell me I can't. Because if we're really being honest with ourselves, we can probably all see a little bit of Gideon in us. Like we feel called to do something, but the fear keeps us from doing it. The fear keeps us from moving forward. Last week at the end of the second service, Andrew invited people from the congregation to come up and pray. And you could almost feel the fear in the room. But I, I, I assure you, somebody had something on their heart that they were called to share but the fear kept them in their seat. If I just wait long enough, somebody else will get up and pray or we'll run out of time. And if I'm being honest, I can relate to Gideon a lot. I have failed at so many things in my life. And so many times, I believed the lie that I'm not good enough, probably more than I would care to admit. But I've also learned these two truths. Our faith is contagious. Our faith is contagious. When we can stand on the promise of God and we can move forward with courage knowing that he is with us, people notice that. It's contagious. But the second truth is, is our fear is also contagious. It is really hard to lead people to God. It is really hard to explain our faith to people authentically when we can't live it out because of our fear. We want them to believe it, but yeah, I would believe it if it wasn't for this circumstance. Gideon felt like he was a nobody, unworthy, incapable but yet he remained faithful to what God was calling him to do. 
He was willing to be stretched out of his comfort zone. And in verse 34, it says, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. The literal translation of that is the Holy Spirit clothed himself with Gideon. Which is, if you can just picture the, a glove and a, and a hand. Like the Holy Spirit is your hand. That's doing all the work. The glove is just is what the Holy Spirit fills. The glove is what everybody sees. But the Holy Spirit is the driving force. So this fleece test, if you've ever heard a sermon on Gideon, the fleece test is probably mentioned. But one thing I noticed about the fleece test is it wasn't that Gideon didn't understand what he was called to do. I believe Gideon knew what he was supposed to do, what the will of God was for him. And that's why he blew the trumpet. He blew the trumpet and 32,000 people said yes. The fleece test was a confirmation. He wanted confirmation that when I go, and I'm going to go, I just want to make sure the Lord is with me. Friends, Romans 8 tells us that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you. So oftentimes we pray for more of the Holy Spirit, which is a good thing. But then I got to thinking, we don't need more of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs more of us. If we had more Holy Spirit, if we had the power of the Holy Spirit at our disposal, we would be dangerous people. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. It just wants more of us to say yes. It wants us to surrender. And when we can do that, when we can live that way, as we'll see in Gideon in the next two weeks, anything is possible. So let's pray to that. Will you pray with me? So Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example that Gideon shows us. That even in fear, even in our uncertainty, even in even in the ways that the world attacks us, we can still say yes. We hear you say yes, that you are for us, that you're not against us, that your Holy Spirit dwells in us. So let this be a day where we can, we can turn from regret to repentance. We can, in a sense, blow our trumpet and say, we're moving forward. Lord, we know you're with us. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. but we can't do it without you. So we thank you for your presence here. We thank you for the, the dwelling of your Holy Spirit within us. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.